0: Revelation, chapter 4, as we're working our way through the book of Revelation. Remember back in chapter 1, verse 19, gave us a key verse that gave us the outline of the book. Revelation 1, 19 says, Write these things which you have seen, which was chapter 1. The things which are, which would be chapter 2 and chapter 3. And the things which would take place, notice, After this, that's the Greek word, metatauta, after this. And so we see the book broken down into chapter one, the second division, chapter two and three, the third division, chapters four to chapters 22. And so we just got through looking at chapters two and three, the seven churches, seven being the number of completion, looking at the completed dispensation of the church age. And then we come to chapter 4, and this verse begins with the word metatauta and ends with the word metatauta. After these things, or after this, metatauta, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this, metatauta. And so we see that this chapter 4 clearly begins this third section of the book, after this, after what? After the church age. I think that's what it's clearly talking about. As a matter of fact, in these first three chapters, the word church has been mentioned 19 times. It will not be mentioned again until the very end of the book in Revelation 22, where God's speaking once again to the church and he'll mention it one more time. But it's radical when we look at the tribulation period, chapter 6 through chapters 19, the church is not mentioned once. Which is a clear indication to me, again, that this chapter 4 here, if you would, is sort of a picture of the rapture of the church. After the church age, when God is done dealing with the church, then he's going to judge it. The Bible says uh, in First Peter, that judgment must first come in the house of the Lord. And you read those seven letters. We went through it two months. It was a heavy, heavy time, wasn't it? And there was judgment. In First Corinthians eleven, it says, "Judge yourself that you need not be judged by God." And that's the essence of what he was saying. Judge yourself now. See if you've left your first love. See if you are lukewarm. Are you wrapped up in immorality? He comes and says, "Judge yourself." and and now there's the judgment that's come. And after the church age, now there's another time. And the focus here is now upon heaven. And we, he looked and behold, there was a door standing open in heaven. It's interesting, the very last two churches, the church of Philadelphia in Revelation 3, 8, he said, I know your work. See, I've set before you an open door and no one can shut it. The open door of evangelism upon this earth we talked about. But the open door in heaven. Because they were an obedient church. The church of Philadelphia was an obedient church. And he says there's a door open and nothing's going to shut that door. And then in Revelation 3.20 he says to a church that was very disobedient. He said behold I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door. I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. So the very last church he says if you'll open the door to your heart. I will come in. And now we discover in chapter four, and plus, he'll open his door to you. If you'll open the door of your heart now upon this planet to the Lord, he'll open the door of heaven for you for all of eternity. And then he heard a voice. Like a trumpet. Remember back in Revelation 1.10, That's exactly the same thing. John heard uh, a voice, and it was like a trumpet, and he turned around, and it was Jesus speaking. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And so here he says um, he hears this voice, and what's this voice say? Come up here. Come up to me. Again in First Thessalonians four. We have a clear picture here. In chapter 4, verse 16 through 18, it says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. doesn't say he's coming all the way to earth at this time, but he's coming out of heaven. With the voice of an archangel and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up. That word in the Latin is rapturus, where we get our word rapture from. We are raptured, caught up together with them, with all the saints, to meet the Lord where? In the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Now, when we talk, we often say the second coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ. Really, there's two distinct things. And and we often sort of say the second coming of Christ encompassing them both. But the rapture of the church really isn't the second coming of Christ. Well, it sort of is. He sort of comes part way, and then we are caught up together to be with him in the clouds, and then we're with him for a seven-year period during that tribulation period upon the earth. But the second coming of Christ, we actually know exactly when that is. In Daniel chapter 12, he says you can know the exact day when it is. You can mark it when the abomination of desolation takes place, the exact three-and-a-half-year period, the tribulation period. You can mark it right to the day, 1,260 days, and the Lord's coming back. And we know that we are coming back with him in his second coming. But in Matthew 24, the Lord makes it clear. Nobody knows the day or the hour in which the Son of Man returns. So there he has to be talking something very clearly distinct from his second coming. And I believe that is referring to the rapture of the church. And then he says, hey, comfort one another with these words. Now, I'm not going to get into it today. But there are a number of different views. But two of the ones that I want to point out is there's a view that says there's what's called the mid-trib, that we go through the first three and a half years of the tribulation period, and then the Lord comes and gets us. And then there's some that say we go all the way through the seven-year tribulation period. And then at the very end, the Lord gets us and immediately we turn around and come right back with him. I don't believe either one of those because neither one of those comfort me. (laughs) And the Lord, every time he talks about his coming, he, he always says, look for me. He doesn't say look for the tribulation period or look for the Antichrist, but look for Jesus Christ. And so the thought of, okay, guys, there's a mid so we need to get ready. Everybody get, needs to get some canned goods stacked up and some water. And, you know, a bomb shelter wouldn't, wouldn't be a bad idea. That's not the picture the Lord gives us. The picture the Lord gives us that any moment, the Lord could snatch us away. Two in the field, one is taken, one is left. Two grinding at the mill, one is taken, and one is left. And that we can right now not even be distracted with the tribulation period concerning us, but just run, serving the Lord, telling others about the Lord, and being ready that any moment we can be translated out of here. And so this is sort of a picture. You you see John there, and he hears the voice, a trumpet blast, and all of a sudden, he's called by the Lord to come up here. And the Lord says, I'll show you things which you must take place after this. You know, the Lord wants to show all of us so many radical things, even now. I wonder so many times how many I wonder sometimes how many things we miss out on the Lord wanting to show us. Because we don't have a listening ear. In Jeremiah thirty three three, it says, Call to me, and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things which you do not know. God right now is saying, call out to me and I'll show you radical things right now. Not necessarily about heaven like John, but a lot of other things that are awesome. In 1 Corinthians 2.9, but as it's written, eye is not seen, nor ear heard, nor is entered in the heart of man the things which God's prepared for those who love him. God's prepared things to show you right now. But like John, we need to be in the Spirit on the Lord's day and every day. And notice in verse 2 there, and then immediately I was in the Spirit. And behold, the throne set in heaven, and one set on the throne. Now, this is interesting because back in chapter 1, verse 10, it already says that John was in the Spirit. But now he's in the Spirit again. So this is a different in the Spirit. But he described it with the same words. Remember, Paul had a revelation of heaven. In 2 Corinthians 12, and and he didn't know how to describe it either. He said this in 2 Corinthians 12 too, whether in the body, I do not know, or whether out of the body, I do not know. But it's sort of a picture here, if you would, of John. All of a sudden, he hears a voice. It's the sound of a trumpet, and the voice has come up here, and all of a sudden, he's in the spirit. In other words, he's out of the body. And all of a sudden, he's heading towards this door. What a picture again of the rapture. You know, we often see the rapture, we just immediately caught away. But maybe it, it's, it'll happen in a, in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, but yet it'll happen in such a way that we're standing here, and all of a sudden, you know, and we're at attention, we wake up, and all of a sudden, there's the Lord, like Stephen, who, when he was being stoned, he saw the Lord at the right hand of the Father, and, and there as he looked upon him, so maybe that'll happen. All of a sudden we'll hear it and all of a sudden we're going to see the Lord and the Lord says, "Come on. Come on up." And we're like, "Yeah." And whew, out of the body we go. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Verse The whole chapter is awesome, but we'll just look at a portion of it. In verse 50 it says, "Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption." Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, which is a Christian word for dying, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this incorruptible, or excuse me, For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. And so in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, all of a sudden, we're just together with the Lord, and all those who have died previously for us, together all of us get our brand new body all at once, all together. Now we know right now to be absent from the bodies to be present with the Lord. But the very last verse of Hebrews 11 says we're all going to be glorified together. So the graduation day where we all get our brand new bodies happens all at once. In a moment, in a twinkling of eye, God gathers his bride together in one moment in our new bodies. And then notice what he observes there in verse 2. And then there is a throne set in heaven, and one set on the throne. In the book of Revelation, we're going to see 32 times Christ on the throne. 32 times. The word thrones mentioned a lot more than that, but we're going to actually see him on the throne 32 times. As we look at this book, we're going to discover that the throne of God is the center of the universe. And it has to keep mentioning the throne because everything's in relation to the throne. It's either in front of the throne, beside the throne, above the throne, around the throne, next to the throne. Everything's in relation to the throne and you've got to go back to the throne to to find where the next thing is. And I love that because that is the truth. (laughs) The center of the universe is that God is on the throne. And the sooner you get that down, the happier of a life here on earth you will experience. A matter of fact, in Colossians chapter 3, in those first four verses, it says this. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things of the earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So the Bible tells us to put our mind on the things above how high? Tree level? Star level? No. All the way that right now our minds, our eyes, our heart should be upon the things of heaven. Peter said, although we don't see him, yet we love him. And that if we're ever mindful of the throne of God, that right now on this earth, and he goes on in Colossians to say, that is what's going to keep you pure on this planet. They asked John there in 1 John 3, what's it going to be like when we get to heaven? He says, you know, I don't know. But I know this, that when we see him, we'll be like him. And right now, everybody who thinks these kind of thoughts will purify themselves, even as he is pure right now. To have our mind on the things above is such a key point. To have that heavenly view and to have a loose grip upon the things of the earth. If we got a strong grab and we start loving the things of this world, the Bible says the love of the Father won't abide in us. We need to realize that life on this earth is but a vapor of time. It's a second. And to let loose of this second and grab a hold on eternal life. Grab a hold on things that are eternal and so he focuses in on the throne. He sees the throne. And as he looks at the throne, then he saw him. It says, he who sat there was like Jasper and sardistone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance, like an emerald. Now he uses the words like in appearance. So he's making it clear. It's not like anything you know. How many of you guys have ate iguana? I actually had somebody last service that raised their hand. Somebody from Ecuador. But uh, if you were to say, what's it like? I'm first going to find out what you know. And then from there, try to give a description. You know, it's sort of a cross between, uh, uh, well, we all know it tastes like chicken, right? (laughs) But you'd try to give that description. And so here it doesn't minimize. In other words, just because he's using symbolic words to give you an idea of it doesn't mean it's not real. So, oh, this is all symbolic, so it's not even probably even there. It's a figment of his imagination. No. He's using, it is, in, in literature, it's absolutely fine to use symbolic language to describe something that would give you a sense or an, an understanding of it. And so he says, it's first like a jasper. Jasper is, is like a diamond, clear in color, but emulating all the colors. And then the Sardis stone, it's a beet red, a rich red color, like a ruby, but richer red yet. And so he's looking at this and he sees, like, coming out this glistening, like a diamond behind the Lord, and, and then this red, rich red color coming out. Some say the white representing the purity of God, the holiness of God. Some saying the red representing the blood that Christ shed upon the cross. I don't know. It's interesting that the jasper stone is the last stone representing the last child of Israel on the breastplate of the high priest. In Exodus 39, there was four rows down, three across stones. The first stone was interesting enough, the sardis stone, which is the second stone mentioned here. The last stone was the jasper stone, interesting, which is the last stone. So the first and the last stones on the breastplate representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And the priest, the high priest, was to wear it upon his chest, which was over his heart, because he was always to have the people upon his heart. And I think, what a picture. The Lord (laughs) saying... That what's glistening from me is that which is upon my heart, which is every one of you. I mean, it's not a problem for the Lord to invent, you know, a few billion different types of stones. They estimate right now that half of everybody who's ever lived on the planet in all of history is alive right now. So if there's been six billion people that have been created by God, for him to come up with six billion different types of stones... And here, representing from the first to the last, the beginning, the very end, the very last person I created to the very first person I created, all of them are glistening from me. They're all upon my heart. Jesus tells a parable of man, a man who found a treasure in a field and he sold everything he had to go buy that field that he might have the treasure in the field. Who's the treasure? It's us. And here, what's glistening from the Lord is us upon his heart. And then not only behind the stone, but around the stone, completely encompassed in the throne, not a half rainbow, but a complete rainbow, a total rainbow. And then behind that, it's like an emerald, which is a green, sort of a green hue coming out, a beautiful green coming out behind it. Rainbow representing the covenant. Remember back in Genesis chapter 9, when after the flood, God says there, Uh, in verses 11 through 17 but just pointing out verse 13 he says I set my rainbow in the cloud and it shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth and verse 17 and God said to Noah this is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth so in essence God's saying that which comes out is my covenant that I've made with man that I am faithful to keep my promise I am faithful the very faithfulness of God it says if we are faithless, he remains faithful because he can't deny himself. The very core of his nature glistens with the beautiful multicolored rainbow of his faithfulness. And then around the throne were 24 thrones. And on the thrones I saw 24 elders setting clothed in white robes. And they had crowns of gold on their heads. 24 thrones. At first people speculate and say, well, 24 thrones representing... Um, The 24 elders, the 12 elders of the 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament and the 12 apostles of the New Testament makes a total of of 24. That could be. In Matthew 19, it says this. The Lord gives the apostles a special promise. He said to them, in Matthew 19, verse 28, Assuredly, I say to you that in the generation when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you have followed me, will also sit on the twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brother, or sister, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, and shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and last first. So you say, wow, there it is. Well, he also gave that same promise later to a whole group of disciples. In Luke 22, verse 28 to 30, he says this, But you are those who have continued with me in my trials, and I bestow upon you a kingdom, just as my Father bestowed one upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And so, again, the, the number twelve here doesn't necessarily mean twelve. Twelve. <laughs> but it's referring to uh, a number of saying there is going to be a group of thrones and, and upon the group of thrones, you, you'll be upon one of them. It's interesting in, in First Chronicles 24 that David set up the priesthood in 24 different courses or groups. And that's interesting because in Revelation 1.6, he called us a kingdom of priests or kings and priests unto our God and Father. And so the 24 could be a symbolic representation of the different groups of priesthood that are going to be reigning before and ruling with the Lord, kings and priests before him. Or it could represent all of us. Because in Revelation 3.21, remember last week it it said there, To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. In Romans 8:17 it says and if children then heirs heirs of God and notice joint heirs with Christ if indeed we suffer with him that we may also be glorified together in 2 Timothy 2:12 2, if we endure we shall also reign with him so the Bible clearly talks about every one of us reigning with him. Remember in 1 Corinthians 6, he, he says, what are you guys going to judge us for when you have people right in the church that, with wisdom that can judge your situation? He said, don't you understand? You're going to be judging the world. Don't you get it? You're going to be judging angels. Seeing you're going to have such a, a heavenly place of ruling and reigning, can you not, while upon this earth, judge the simplest of matters? And so the Lord clearly talked to a very carnal church and telling them that all of them were also going to be ruling and reigning and in a place of uh, judgment. I believe the 24 chairs represent all of us. And John here is seeing again in type because with us it's impossible for us to think outside of space and time. Is there really going to be a door in heaven? (laughs) Or does God have to describe doors because that's what we think about entering into something? You have to have a gate or a door or something, you know, when you enter in. But can we imagine something without space? Can we imagine something without time? In a minute, he's going to talk about these angels. It says, night and day, they never cease. Well, later on in Revelation, we discover there is no night, there is no day. But yet he says night and day. Why? Because... To us, that's, there's, that's the way we think of time. So he has to use these words to help us understand the concept. And so, uh, again, here, you know, thrones and setting upon thrones in 24, uh, talking about a completed uh, number for all of us. And then notice he clothed us in white robes. Again, we've talked about that, the robes of righteousness In Revelation 3, 4, and 5, it says, You have a few names even in Sardis who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. Every one of us who make it to heaven will have a white robe representing the righteousness imputed to us by Christ. And then they had crowns of gold upon their heads. Some try to say that maybe these 24 represent angels, and boy, here you know it's not angels because there's doesn't talk about angels being crowned whatsoever, only man who's been faithful, obedient to the Lord. In 1 Corinthians 9.25, it tells us that there's a crowning because we've won the prize, we've won the race, we've finished the fight, fighting over the earth, fighting over our flesh, fighting over the devil. It says, and everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. In 1 Thessalonians 2.19. For what is our hope, our joy, our crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of the Lord Christ at his coming? So those people that we've led to the Lord. There's a crown. In 2 Timothy 4.8. A readiness at the Lord's return. Finally there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. Which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So being ready either when you die or ready at the rapture of the church is a special crown for being ready right to the very end. In 1 Peter 5.4, <clears throat> and when the chief priest appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. So a crown of righteousness for being ready. Here we have a crown of glory for being a faithful leader, whether in the church or whether in your home or wherever you've been a faithful leader before the Lord. In James 1.12, there's a crown for fighting sin and winning over it. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. And in Revelation 2.10, it mentions that again, the crown of life. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. So seated upon the throne in our white robes of righteousness with a crown of reward upon our head, 24 thrones surrounding the throne of God. And then in verse Five, it tells us, and from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which the seven spirits of God. In Exodus 19, verses 16 through 19, and Exodus 20, 18 through 19, both times when God's presence comes on Mount Sinai, the same picture is there. The smoke representing the Shekinah glory of God, lightning and thunder, the presence of God. And the people sensed the presence of God. It was so awesome that they became afraid. And they said, don't let the Lord speak to us anymore. For now on, Moses, you talk to us. It's just an awesome thing to be in the presence of God. And there we see the spirits of God once again, there before the presence of the Lord. And then in chapter four, verse six, and before the throne, there was a sea of glass, like crystal, Or it could be translated the other way. There was before the throne, like a sea of glass that was crystal. You can put the word like in either place. But in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. So there is this sea, this ocean. And its water was not like anything I've ever seen, it was rich, it was like a fine crystal. And it was completely still, completely calm, like a calm I've never seen before, just like glass. Boy, I don't know about you, but that is enough to make heaven, heaven right there. (laughs) The older I get, the more calm I like. Things being at peace. (sighs) Still, nothing getting broke. Nobody tearing my house apart. Just calm, peace. No more war, no more fighting, no more struggle. This week I had a plugged up bathtub. Me against nature. Hairball, dead rat, I don't know what it was. Did not want to come out. Every chemical known to man, wires, snakes, everything you can think of. Finally, success. Success. But it was stressful. All the things of this planet, we wrestle and fight and struggle. Getting out of bed, going to bed, making food, cleaning up after making the food, making trash, taking out the trash, relationships. Everything's a fight. Everything's a struggle. And to know that one day we're going to be before the throne of God Oh, a sea. A sea of what? Water represented could be the word of God. The Bible says the Lord washes us in the water of the word. And we know that in in Hebrews chapter 4, it tells us that we can come before that throne of grace to receive mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. So it's a sea of the water of the word. In in Acts 20, it says that the word of his grace. So it could be both. (laughs) splashing around but yet no splash in his mercy and his grace and his forgiveness something we've known ever so well been washed in the water of his word over and over again to be holy clean without blemish without spot without wrinkle before him and there we see it now completely calm completely still before that throne of god you know we don't have to wait to get to heaven To experience that calm. You can't have it around you. But you can have that calm. That grace. That abundant grace and mercy and peace and calm right now. In Philippians chapter 4 verse 6. It says, Be anxious for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplications with thanksgivings. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So you can have a peace that passes all understanding, that peace of heaven, that heavenly peace, that that we can't even begin to fathom, pass our human comprehension. We'll never understand it till we get to heaven. Now we see in part and know in part. But one day we'll see all things and know even as we are known. But we can have that little heavenly breeze, if you would, that little heavenly calm right now in our hearts and in our minds if we'll give it to prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. God, I know you have everything in control. I know everything is in your power. You are upon the throne and all things are in your care. In 1 Peter 5, it says, Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. There as we come to that throne of God and rest ourselves as he calms our hearts, putting his hand upon our heads, as dads often do to their little guys, you know. And he, that he may exalt you in due time. And now what do we do? We cast all our cares upon him, for he cares for you. We can just come and pour our hearts out before him and let that calm, that peace of heaven guard our hearts and our minds. And then there's these four living creatures around the throne, they're in the midst of the throne and around the throne and, and they're full of eyes in front and in back. And in verse seven, it says, the first living creature was like a lion and the second living creature like a calf and the third living creature had the face of a man and the fourth living creature like the flying eagle. Now, these are interesting creatures that we're looking at here. And we, we see that that space is not an issue They're in and around and by and through and space isn't an issue. Their eyes are in front and behind and in and down and around and they're not missing out on anything. I mean, that's another awesome thing about heaven. We can soak it all in. We can see it all. We can experience it all. We can know it all. I mean, that's that's one of the hard things on planet Earth, isn't it? I mean, as soon as things get good, it lasts such a short time and it's over like my sermon this morning I mean once I get into it an hour and a half or so oh even though you want me to go another hour and a half it's we got to (laughs) end but you know how that is you see it with little kids in particular no they're out there struggling they finally got all the toys set up just the way they want time to go no we just got it set up we finally got in sync you know we're linked in one heart and one mind, and now we're going to play, you know. It's 10 o'clock at night. You got to go. Don't touch anything. Leave it right here. I'll come back next week. We'll play again. It's a tough thing, things to end. But yeah, when we get to heaven, it doesn't have to end. Nobody's going to be wearing a watch in heaven. <laughs> one day, one billion years, it, it's not going to matter. And here we see these creatures just wanting to worship before the Lord. They don't want to stop. And guess what? They don't have to. They can just keep on going. Now, we find it interesting here that one looked like a lion, one looked like an ox or a calf, a beast of burden. And one looked like a man and one looked like an eagle. Now, You can also read and study out, and if you want to go back to listen to my tapes, I taught a bit in depth on this, in Ezekiel chapter 1, we went into this looking, there it's what's called the cherubim. But then we also see in Isaiah chapter 6, another creature that's called the seraphim. And they're very similar. We find in Ezekiel, the cherubim actually have four faces, one on each side of its head, which makes sense because they have eyes all the way around. And here it doesn't appear to be the same. We also have a real key indicator, because in Ezekiel chapter 1, those seraphim have four wings, where the seraphim here, as in Isaiah 6, have six wings. And Isaiah tells us, two they cover their face, two they cover their feet, and two they fly with. But yet they both have the same distinguishing features of these four. A lion. Probably the simplest way to look at these four is a lion is the mightiest of all wild animals, the king of the jungle. The ox is the strongest of all domesticated animals, that beast of burden. The eagle is the king of all the birds, the elite of all birds, and man is the highest of all creation. Or some want to take it and look at it from the nature of God. In other words, they're around the throne, and so actually what they're declaring forth is the nature of God. And so if you look at it as a lion, looking at God's authority, Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Or looking at the calf, the oxen, the beast of burden, and also that which is sacrificed. Christ, who came and carried our sins and was sacrificed for us. The face of man, that we were, one, made in the image of God, but, two, Christ came in the image of man as the Son of Man. Then the face of an eagle, which is the, the picture of one Fully walking in the Spirit. Fully walking in the power of God. We have this picture in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31. But it says, those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. So an eagle is a a picture of one that soars without strain, without stress, without difficulty, and sort of a picture of one walking fully in the power of the Spirit, not by the energies of the flesh at all, but totally being led by the Spirit and strengthened by the Spirit and by the power of God operating. Now, some try to take these and, and do all kinds of things with them. Some say they all represent the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew being uh, the kingly line, and Mark looking at the servanthood of man and so forth. And, and they go on. And there's a lot of other ones too. It's sort of an infinite grouping. And uh, so there's a couple of them that you can look at. But nevertheless, it, it does display this heavenly scene. And no doubt, God made it. So it's in the image of God in some way. And in verse 8, these four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within. And they do not rest day or night saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. So we see that they don't miss out on anything. Their eyes can see down inside. We can't do that now, can we? We can't look upon the heart. But in heaven we can. We can look through and through because we're going to have the perfect righteousness of Christ and we can look right to the very core. Why can't we look to the heart of man now? Because it would gross us out. (laughs) It would make us sick. It would scare us. Because the heart of man is desperately, deceitfully wicked above all things who can know it. But sometimes we do see the heart of a person. That's a beautiful thing. But then when we're perfect in the nature of God, as God has made us in his perfect righteousness, we can look right to the heart within but all the way around. I mean, here it's a frustrating thing because we often can't see everything. Many of you have missed the first steps of your child because you were at work or on Westpac or whatever. Sometimes we miss out just because we can't turn our head quick enough. Oh man, I missed it. But yet in that time, we won't miss out on anything. We'll see it all, understand it all, soak it all in. And then notice night and day. Again, in Revelation twenty one twenty five it says, The gate shall not be shut at all by day. There will be no night there. In Revelation 22, 5, it says, There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. So again, this is an expression, day or night. They don't rest. They don't need to rest. Why? Because in Psalms 121.4, it says, Behold, he who keeps Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. In Isaiah 40.28, it says, The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, never faints nor is weary. We'll say, what's that have to do with us? Because in 1 John 3.2, again, it says, But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be what? Like him for we shall see him as he is. So like our Lord who never slumbers or sleeps or grows faint or weary, nor will we. Boy, there's another thing that would make heaven heaven. Imagine that. Never being tired. Never being weary. Never being wore out. I just sort of live in that state. (laughs) But yet just always having full energy, full strength, a clear mind, 100% ready to go at all times. And what do they want to do? These creatures, they want to worship without stopping. And what do they say? First of all, they say, holy, holy, holy. They declare the purity. They declare the the truth. They declare the the perfect God in every way, without sin, without blemish, without any imperfections. When Isaiah chapter 6 saw the Lord and saw that God was holy, holy, holy. He fell down and he couldn't get up. He just said, I'm undone because I'm an evil man. I'm a wicked man. I'm a filthy man. And I dwell on a planet with everybody who's filthy. And how can I be a part of this heavenly scene? It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Thankfully, when we see God being holy, we will be holy as he is holy (laughs) because it'll be given to us as a gift. So we won't have that same experience as Isaiah had and the Apostle John had in chapter 1 of falling down as a dead man. So often people try to focus on the love of God. God's a God of love. You know, everybody's going to make it. I know there's that hell thing to sort of, you know, keep people, a little tension to keep people straightened up. But when push comes to shove, everybody's going to heaven because God is a God of love. It's interesting they didn't say love, love, love i try to focus on the, the grace of God. You know, oh, the grace is going to cover it all. Yeah, nobody really lives the way they should, but, you know, eventually grace is covering it all. Boy, I can't disagree with you. Grace is a huge thing. But it's interesting they didn't say grace, grace, grace. Ah, oh, the mercy of God. Everybody will have so much mercy. No worry, we're all going to make it. It's interesting they didn't say mercy, mercy, mercy. When you look at a lot of things they could have been declaring that would have been right, that would have been true, that would have been wonderful, but yet there's one thing that overshadowed everything that God also was. Overshadowing his love, overshadowing his mercy, overshadowing his his goodness, overshadowing judgment. It's just the awesome purity of God. And then on top of that, the Lord God Almighty which is a term literally saying that God is over everything. His hand is upon everything. Guys, get it? God is on the throne and He is a sovereign God. There's not one piece of sand that moves that He doesn't know about. There's not one sparrow that falls from the sky that He doesn't know about. There's not one hair upon every one of our heads that He doesn't know by number. Our tiny little Milky Way. Milky Way galaxy. 100,000 miles. Is that right? 100 million miles. 100 million miles by 100 million miles. And here we are. The Bible says God's hand spans the entire universe. He puts every star in its place, keeps it there and gives it a name. And here we are, this little tiny Milky Way galaxy in the midst of this universe, but a dot. And here our little planet Earth is but a dot (laughs) inside the dot. And here you are a little tiny speck on the little tiny dot in the midst of this universe. And he knows you by name and knows every hair upon your head. When we see things as they really are, guys, our little puny brains can't even soak it in. we are going to be saying, Oh, Lord God Almighty. And then who was and is and is to come. God has always been, always exists now, always will exist. God created things. God right now is in the midst of his creation. And God is coming back to redeem man that has received him. And he's going to finish his creation and start a new creation. But God forbid that anybody ever said that God was an absentee God. <laughs> Some try to make God as the guy who just got the top, started spinning it, and then kicked back and, you know, got his potato chips and his Coke and watched as the world turns. And just sort of seeing how it all works out. God is not that way. God has always been active within creation. God has always been speaking to every single man's heart. And God will always be intricately involved in every one of our lives forever and ever. And how awesome that is. And then in verse 9 to verse 11, finishing up here, it says, Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever the 24 elders fall down before Him who sits on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever, and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, you, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. So these creatures now begin to stir up the hearts of the saints. As they begin to say, holy, holy, holy. And I'm sure they said a whole lot more than's written here, but a little sneak preview of what it's going to be like. But here's a little glimpse of it, and these guys get stirred up. I mean, just imagine it, guys. We are going to go to heaven. Imagine that. Guys, you realize that in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, we can be experiencing this. The stage is set. We look at end times prophecy. The stage has been set. We're all the prop guys. We can leave. Let the actors take the stage and let's get out of here. It could be any moment that we could be experiencing this. I mean, imagine this. Number one, God is letting us go to heaven. Do any of us deserve that? (laughs) I'll tell you what I deserve. To go to hell a thousand times over, in the deepest, darkest place, in the hottest fire. But yet, I'm going to go to heaven. Not because I deserve it, but because of His grace, because of His mercy, because of the gift of Christ. But then, it's not just enough that I'm in heaven, but He's going to give me His righteousness, the exact righteousness, the exact holiness of Jesus Christ Himself. I am going to be clothed then for all of eternity. Now, if that were not enough to humble me, to lay me out on my face for all of eternity, he says, by the way, I want to reward you. Come on. Apart from him, we can do what? (laughs) Nothing. We've never done anything eternal, lasting, spiritual, so holy and positive that we should receive a reward for it. Look amongst us. Not many wise, not many noble, not many honorable. God's chosen the weak things, the base things of this world. Why? So he who glories would glory in the Lord. Everything we've ever done that was good, it was by the power and the grace and the strength of God overcoming our fleshly estate, overcoming this sick world we live in, overcoming Satan. God, through the power of his spirit, overwhelmed my evilness. And accomplish good things through me. But 100%. 100% of the glory goes to him. But yet, he's going to reward us anyway. (laughs) He's going to reward us and put a crown upon our head. Now, if that is not enough to just break you to pieces, he then puts us upon a throne. Next to his throne. So here we are, robed in his righteousness, crowned with the crown of gold, seated upon a throne next to his throne, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Alpha and the Omega, the perfect one, the Holy One. And we are there ruling and reigning with Christ, joint heirs with Christ Jesus. No doubt, just saturated in grace, <laughs> sort of floating in an atmosphere of peace, a love a mercy, a calm, just an atmosphere with no evil, no sin, no guile. And there we are just sort of overwhelmed in all of this and just going, I don't know what to say. And all of a sudden, these angels begin to put the very words in our mouth that is upon our hearts. Oh God, you alone are worthy. Man, I can't stand this anymore. Take this crown and skip it across that glassy sea to the feet of Jesus. Leave that throne and fall upon our face and begin to cry out, you alone are worthy, O God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. You made it for you, for your glory, for your will, for your desire. It's all about you, Jesus. To truly be humble and broken. At that time before the Lord. And to realize how awesome he has been to us. You know it says in Revelation. The only book in the Bible. It says as you read through this book. As you hear it. There's going to be a special blessing I'm going to put upon you. I'm going to bless your life in a unique way. And boy here we see a view that just blows our mind as we see so clearly this picture of heaven to get our minds on the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And so we've gone through the seven churches saying, God, search our heart. See if there be any wicked way in us. Why? Because after this, <laughs> it's appointed every man to die once and then comes judgment. Are we going to be experiencing this awesome view for all of eternity? Or are you going to be missing out on it for all of eternity? Later we're going to see a description of hell. Which is equally as horrific. But in the opposite way. And the question is, where are you going to go? It's God's desire that everyone would be saved. That everyone would receive him as Lord and Savior. He would be upon the throne of your life. And that you would have him, and he would have you for all of eternity. Let's bow our heads. Lord, we come before you right now, and we are truly in awe of this radical, radical view. As we contemplate and think about our heaven to come our new address for all of eternity. What joy, what cleansing it brings to us. We see how we can run this race with endurance when we have such a goal set before us, such a, a, a prize in front of us. We, we see, even though we're in the 18th mile of our marathon and we feel like we're going to collapse, we see how we can not grow weary and well-doing knowing what we're going to reap if we faint not is so overwhelming. And Lord, we stop for a moment here for you to speak to those that you've brought here today, clearly telling them they're not ready. And right now, why every head is bowed and every eye is closed, there's some of you that God has brought. Maybe it's your first time. Maybe it's your hundredth time. But you've come here today because God, by the power of His Spirit, has opened your eyes to see that you're not ready. If Christ were to come today, are you ready? If you were to die today, are you ready? You need to leave here today absolutely certain. Christ wants to take your sin away, the guilt of your sin. He wants to erase. He wants to write your name in the book of life and that you would know that your name is in the book of life. But the Bible says you first have to humble yourself before God can lift you up. The we way we're going to do that this morning is there may be some of you here saying, That's me. I want my life right with God. I want today to make Christ on the throne of my heart. Then, right now, what I'm going to ask you to do is get up out of your seat, you and a number of other people with you, and to come and stand right here in front, humbling yourself, saying, I'm a sinner, but I come to confess my sin. And I want to lead you in a prayer and encourage you this morning. Let's all stand up right now and don't wait just a moment. Christ boldly hung on a cross for you. Get up out of your seat and make your way right now. Don't look at anybody else. Don't care what anybody else thinks. Don't care what anybody else is doing. Not your parents, not a friend you saw from school or work. God bless you. Thank you, Lord. And there's others right now. Just come right over here and stand. We're going to sing this one song. This is your opportunity right now just to come on over. Alone our Father and you alone our good you alone our savior and you God bless you. Alone our God Don't let pride keep you down. Don't let your own stubbornness that's messed you up this far keep you come off your throne and let the Lord reign on the throne of your heart. But you first got to get off your high horse. You first got to give up your pride. Give up your whatever it might be and say, I don't care what anybody else thinks. I want to leave here today. The Bible says, fall upon the rock and be broken or lest one day the rock fall upon you and crush you to powder. This is it. We're going to sing it one more time. Come now. Be ready today. Leave here right with God. You Alone, our Father, and you. Alone, our good you. Alone, our Savior, and you. Alone, our God. Lord, we thank you for these this morning that have made that choice, made that decision. Lord, you said if one receives you, all of heaven rejoices. How much more? these handful here now and touch their hearts let them leave here impacted powerfully for your kingdom And right now this morning I'm going to ask and help you to pray I know at one point somebody helped me to pray I didn't know what to pray and I was so thankful and let's all pray this morning to make these here feel comfortable at home dear heavenly father I know that you love me that you sent your son to die for me to take all my sin upon himself to be punished in my place to die and to raise again that I might have life forgive me now through the blood of Jesus Christ and take my life take the throne of my heart be my Lord and my God and my Savior in Jesus name and Lord, bless all those this morning with your word. Send it out and heal them. Wash them in it. Cleanse them in it, Lord. Encourage them. Give them a new energized Gatorade to continue in that race, to run the race with endurance until the end. In Jesus' precious name. And everyone said, amen. Hey, before you head out, meet somebody around you don't know, you, ask, you don't know, ask their name. And one thing you can pray for them throughout the week. I encourage you to see you back here tonight. God bless.